What we're going to do in the next number of minutes is study Genesis 44 together. So if you have a Bible or if uh, there's a screen to turn on of some kind, I'd encourage you to go to Genesis 44. Uh, as you're turning there, I just want to introduce myself. My name's Lance. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the, the privilege often on a, on a morning like this to read the Bible with you and then to consider it. And what we're asking God to do is to do something that only He can, uh, which is to teach us and to grow us and to show us uh, ourselves in a way that we would not know otherwise. So before we read the 44th chapter of Genesis, I want to do two things in case you're visiting or maybe if you've uh, missed the last number of weeks or let's just be honest, you could be here every single week and I'm not that clear that you remember what I said. So why don't we just get reoriented for a second? And there's two things that I want to remind us as we get started. One relates to the story, the story that we're in of Joseph and his life and what's happening. And then the second is the situation as the 44th chapter opens. To remind you of the story, Joseph is a pointed example of the way that God can often work behind, under, and through situations that we simply could not explain in human terms. All of us especially have felt instances and know the feeling, many times of suffering or of difficulty, when the only thing we can muster, and whether we say it explicitly or not, it bubbles up from our souls, we essentially experience life and what we want to cry out to God is, why? Why? And the reason that we love Joseph so much, the reason that we've looked at this as a sort of separate little mini-series in Genesis is because this narrative, this story, reminds us that God is able to and is willing to work good even from difficult suffering and evil circumstances. So by the time we read through all of this story and we get to the moment where Joseph explodes and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, we rejoice with him. And I would just remind you as well that if you were a Christian, that what your hope ultimately is, your hope is that God, despite a world that's often falling apart, certainly in spite of you and me and all of our lack and our failing, the hope is, is that one day we're going to get to all things and all the questions that we asked why and all the things that we didn't know and all the ways that we fell short, we're going to be able to rejoice and say God was working and God meant good and there is redemption. So that's the story that we're in though we don't know the answers yet. And that leads us to, I just want to remind you of the situation. Genesis 44 opens with Joseph about to send his brothers away. They have come, not once, but twice, to get food. In a world and in a land where they were suffering and about to die because of famine, they had to come to Joseph. They don't know who he is. They expected to be treated harshly. They keep calling him the man. Except in the last chapter, rather than receiving harsh treatment, they're given a feast. Just massive delicacies and a wonder of a full belly in the midst of a famine. And it's at the end of this feast that we are beginning chapter 44 of Genesis. And I want to read down through the whole of the chapter, and we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray and ask God to help us understand it. So, if you have it with you, there's a way for, for you to follow along. It should be on the screen behind me. Uh, let's consider the 44th chapter of Genesis. I'm going to start in the first verse. Then he, this being Joseph, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. 
with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such, speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we have found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be the Lord's servants, my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, 
Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I want to ask you to pray with me. We've just read the Word of God. We've read Scripture. And my guess is that if you're here this morning, that you share a common conviction with me. And that is that this is not mere ink on page. This isn't a good book or a more moral book than most, but that there is very life in these words. That's our confession. It's what we say. It's what we know. It's what we trust. And the reason that I pause and pray right now, and I'm asking you to pray with me, to align your heart with me, is because I do not want to go through the motions. I don't want to let what is familiar lead us down a path of being distracted and just hearing these words. I want to be expectant. I want to ask that the Spirit of God moves in our midst and does in us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is that He would bring hope and life and stir us in faith. And so I think, I think that's what you want to. I think that's the hope that you would desire to. And so I'm going to ask you just to, to pray with me that that would be so. God, I ask that as we consider Scripture, that our confession, the things that we say that we believe about this, would not be lost to us. We're not smart enough. We're not powerful enough. I'm not eloquent enough to change hearts and to change minds. And you, um, you are. Spirit, you're powerful. You can move. Your desire for us is more than we could know. And so I ask that you would be a blessing and an encouragement and a help to everyone who's here. Help me to get out of the way. And whatever you desire to show us, that we would learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The two sections of Genesis 44, I'm going to break them up into verses 1 through 13, and I'm just going to use the word strategy. Or, I think to use a slightly more sophisticated, more fun word, strategery. Now, strategery, I do believe, is a word. It sounds like a made-up word, but I think it is an actual dictionary word. Verses 1 through 13 is Joseph enacting a sort of magna, magnum opus. I think magnus opus, is that a word? Is that the way you say that? I always look at Zach because he knows words. Of strategery. He has a strategy that he puts into place. That's verses 1 through 13. And then, starting in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter, we're going to look at and consider the idea of substitution. It's pretty straightforward. What does it look like for Judah to set forward the idea of substituting himself for his brother? And so that's how the chapter breaks out, and I'm going to start considering it in that way. The first thing is to consider the strategy, and it's a good question as we start Genesis 44. What is Joseph going to do? In fact, I would say there's two outstanding questions at this particular point. If you've been following along and you're paying careful attention and you want to know what's going to take place, or maybe more than that, you want to get into the mind and hearts of the characters, you're asking two big questions. The first relates to Joseph. How is he thinking about his brothers? And what is he going to do? And in my opinion, like most nuanced, complicated, emotional beings, like us as humans, Joseph is probably mixed. He's given us mixed signals. There's moments when he speaks harshly to his brothers and he sends them away and he plays tricks on them. 
He takes Simeon and puts him in jail. And for all he knows, when he sends his brothers back home to his father, they're never going to return again. And so you might say to yourself, all right, so Joseph understands, he knows who they are, but he has removed himself from the situation and he's done with it. He meant it when he named his child, I've forgotten the suffering of my upbringing. He's just done with it. So maybe Joseph is going to be sort of patiently enduring the relationship that he needs with his brothers, but he's just going to keep them alive and otherwise keep them at arm length, arm's length. So why hasn't he said who he is? At any given moment in the midst of this, even at the feast, he could have said, all right, hey, stop calling me the man. I'm Joseph. And I don't know if he's been wearing a secret beard or what he is, but he, he could have Clark Kent Superman the thing anytime he wanted to. Just take off the glasses. He hasn't. So the question is, well, what is he going to do? The other mixed signal, though, on the other side of it is there's been multiple times up to this point where Joseph has had to remove himself entirely from the situation and weep. He's so moved by the fact that his brothers showed up, there's some part of him that still desires to know them that, that he's overwhelmed. He steps away, he weeps, he has to come back in. It says at the end of Genesis 43 that at this feast, all he could do is muster an emotional serve up the food through tears. Reminds me of the kind of love that my mother-in-law has for her family. I oftentimes, because we lived in North Dakota, I made a commitment to my wife that we would be with her family in Louisiana as much as we could, especially over Christmas time, especially early on in our marriage. And my mother-in-law started a tradition before Christmas Eve meal that she cooked and Cajuns can cook. She cooked. That's a capital C, cooked. But before we would eat, she read this little book called You Are Special. And she started this as a routine. And it became to the point where it was one of the most moving and amazing moments, but also kind of hilarious because she could not get through sentences of the book without weeping openly in front of all of us. And so every word that she said, it got to the point where it threatened Christmas Eve itself. I mean, Santa was like, you know, what, let's get through this. And all she could muster sometimes was to read half of the first page and then say, you know the rest, blubbering, and then we would pray for the food. It's that kind of emotion that Joseph has showed sometimes. He can barely get through it, and so you think to yourself, oh, well, his desire is for his brothers. I see where this is going, but so far we just don't know. It's an outstanding question. Secondarily, and I think a bigger one, especially for Joseph and maybe for us too, we want to know about the brothers. What are they thinking about the situation? Have they changed it all? Are they jerks? Are they in it for themselves? Do they suspect anything? Are they going to keep saying, the man, the man, the man, or do they know? And I think it's the second question. What about the brothers that Joseph wants to know, and it's why he enacts this bit of strategy at the beginning of Genesis 44. He enacts this bit of strategy to find out. He doesn't know if he can trust them. And here's the thing about being hurt and having suffering in your life. Forgiveness even if desire to be offered, does not mean that you rush haphazardly into suffering again. So he's not being vindictive. He's not being crazy. I don't think he's hard-hearted. In fact, I think he's a little bit wise. He wants to know, has anything changed in these brothers? If I show myself to them, are they just going to treat me the same? And so, in order to find this out, he sets them up. He's playing a strategic game. He's going to send them away. The first time he puts secret money in there, he does the same thing again, except now he does another thing, a little bit more dastardly. He puts a silver cup in Benjamin's pack and sends them away. 
Then as they leave on their donkeys, and remember last chapter they were worried, so worried that they were going to seize their donkeys. So they must be happy. They still have their donkeys, and they're sent away on their donkeys. And eventually the steward overtakes them and sets up this whole experience where Benjamin is found out as the one who is guilty, according to the brothers, in all of their confidence, the one worthy of death. And they are given a choice. The choice can be, you go free and we take Benjamin back as a slave, or you all come back with me. And what has happened here is that Joseph, his strategy is to recreate a childhood picture. Are you guys with it enough on the internet to know when people recreate family photos? Have you seen this before? You know how like someone digs out the old photo from 25 years ago, and they say, oh, isn't that cute? Wouldn't that be wonderful if we remade that right now and I'm going to try to fit in that shirt again? Or have you seen this before? They just recreate everything. So maybe there's a dad, you know, and he's holding his son. And the son's in a diaper. And then they recreate the picture of a way gray, balding, fat dad holding a grown man, preferably not in a diaper. But sometimes people go there. They recreate the family photo. They stage everything set and they say, oh, look at the differences. Usually those two pictures come into one of two categories and there's nothing in between. Either super cute and well done or that is so creepy, don't ever show me that again. And you've seen these, right? Joseph says, I have a plan. I'm going to recreate a family photo because I remember some 20 years ago, I remember a point in time when a whole group of brothers decided to sell their youngest, their father's favored, off into slavery to enrich themselves, to save themselves. And now... What he has done is he's recreated the picture. Benjamin, guilty as can be in front of them, the steward's standing, all the brothers there, and then they're offered. And they know that the offer's there. Judah mentions it later. The offer is there. Whoever's guilty comes with me as a slave. The rest of you can go home. And what Joseph has done is he has strategically set up a test to find out if his brothers have changed. There's a sense in which Joseph might say, stop me if you've heard this one before. Favored youngest brother, you guys put at the place where you could, be, go, you could go free, what will you do? And it's this test that reveals the change that's taken place in the brothers and I think eventually allows Joseph to entrust himself back to them. We get the answer to this problem in verse 13. The moment that Benjamin is found out is having the cup in his sack, it tells us in verse 13 that they tore their clothes. They are undone. Some of the imagery here is amazing in the contrast of the family picture. Do you recall when Joseph is sent off into slavery and they are skipping their way back home with the silver jingling in their pockets? And they say, how can we make this realistic? Uh, we got to take the coat. we got to tell him that he was eaten by, a, by an animal. I know what we'll do. Tear his clothes. And now, some two decades on, we find that it's the brothers themselves who tear their clothes out of sadness and being undone for the soon-to-be-realized loss of their father's favored, the youngest brother. They tear their clothes, they load up their donkeys, but we still aren't quite sure there's still a moment for them to escape. And so the last few words of verse 13 are important. It tells us that they returned to the city. 
Do you see how just as easily Joseph might have suspected? He sets the whole thing up. The strategery is in place. He springs the trap. It happens. They tear their clothes. They're sad. They loaded their donkeys. There's a moment when they know Benjamin can go off into slavery and we can go free. And the end of 13 could have very easily said they loaded up their donkeys and they returned to Canaan. They returned to their father. This time, they wouldn't even have to make up a story. They could go back and they could say, our father, I'm so sorry, I, I didn't, we didn't know that Benjamin was a scoundrel. I know it hurts you, but he steals. And so he's gone. They would have been scot-free. But the strategy is meant to uncover the change that has taken place in them, which is exactly what we see. They tear their clothes, they load their donkeys, and they say, we're not giving up our brother, we're going with him back to the city. And it's there back at the city, starting in verse 14, that we find unfold in front of us one of the most dramatic changes and one of the most astounding offerings that we've seen so far in the Bible, that is Judah sticks out his neck for his brother. It tells us in verse 14 that Judah and his brothers, which is an interesting detail, Judah at this point now has become the clear leader of the clan. Not the favored, not the one that Jacob loves, but he has been transformed into the spokesman, the leader of this crew. It's when Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house, they fell to the ground before him. The wording here is different. You know, of course, from Genesis 37, the vision and the dreams that Joseph said that angered them so much is that they would bow down to him. And that's happened numerous times already. They come as negotiators and they very carefully and respectfully bow. But this is a different kind of thing. Their clothes are torn. They feel completely undone and guilty and helpless. And so when it says they fell down before him, this is more of a we are hopeless and helpless. We're casting ourselves before you. They fell on their faces before Joseph. And Joseph wants to know. He gives them an opportunity after the trap has been set. He wants to know how good his strategy worked. So he says, why have you done this? What have you done? And it is here that Judah steps forward with one of the most amazing speeches. Most commentators say that this is the most passionate, eloquent speech, many, maybe of the entire Old Testament, but certainly to date in Genesis. Now, before considering Judah's speech, I just want to remind you what kind of person he is. Because whenever we think of something grand and glorious, like a substitution, someone who does something great, you ever hear somebody do something great, and there's usually a couple of responses. One, if the person is great, you might say, oh, of course they did. That's just so-and-so. Of course they did. You know, if, I, if you told me any competitive story concerning Michael Jordan, I don't care what it was. If it was competitive and he won, I would just say, like, of course he did, that guy but do you ever hear a story and something takes place and it's so out of character and so odd you say to yourself, no. Them? How? And I think that's what we're supposed to feel about Judah. I'll just give you a couple of little scenes previous to this for Judah. Chapter 37, Judah is the one. When Joseph's already in the pit, Judah has a brainstorm, an idea. He thinks to himself, oh man, I can't believe that we're going to have our brother, youngest, the father's favorite, sent off into slavery without making money on it. That's his idea. He's the one that comes forward and says, we should sell him. 
Why get rid of him for free when we could get rich? That's the Judah we're talking about. Then chapter 38 in Genesis is an entire aside. It's out of chronological order, which is a good tip. If you're someone who just says, okay, I'll try to read the Bible more and I want to understand it, it doesn't go in a neat chronological order. It doesn't flip from one month to the next or one day to the next. In fact, Genesis 38 likely fast-forwards some 20 years into the future because Judah is old enough to have left his family, found a wife, had three children. Two of those children at least are of marrying age. He grabs Tamar, a wife for his oldest son, who is so evil God kills him. The second son also dies at God's hand for being evil. Then Judah lies to Tamar and says, okay, fine, stay in my house and just hang around and then my youngest son will be your husband. She figures out and is there long enough to get exasperated and realizes this is never going to happen. Then the picture we have of Judah is not only removing himself from Canaan and all the promises, but finding wives from people who he should not associate with, then lying to his daughter-in-law, having sons that were so evil that they were killed by God, then that same Judah goes off into pagan celebrations with all kinds of despicable debauchery. And he doesn't just watch what's happening. We find that he goes and finds what he believes is, we could just call her a, a woman of the street, who is Tamar secretly, They have an engagement, and then so much time passes that she knows that she's pregnant and sets up a moment where she is rebuking him in front of all of the people that he leads and loves. That's Judah. That's the guy. That's the picture. But a funny thing happens at the end of Genesis 38, and that is when he's called out, Judah confesses his guilt, clears Tamar, and says, she is righteous not me, which would have been a terribly humbling thing for someone to do in front of everyone that he was in charge of. You know how hard it is for someone of influence and of power, someone who has reasons to keep up pretenses? You know how hard it is for someone to admit guilt and shame and wrongdoing? And yet Judah, it seems as though something has taken place in the midst of that transformation that sends him back to his homeland, back to the love of his father, back as a spokesman for the covenant people of God, and now the transformation has come so full circle that he's willing to step in front, and rather than profiting from the sale of the youngest and the favored, he desires to substitute himself. This is storybook kind of stuff. If you were watching a Hallmark movie with your parents and a character had an arc like this, you'd say, oh, come on. Sometimes I have to excuse myself from the room when Sarah's watching movies because I can't help but say things like, oh, <laughs> oh come on. But Judah is a transformed man. And what he does is he steps forward to speak, and here's some good lessons about how to handle guilt. The first thing he does is he admits that they have no excuse. He doesn't blubber on. He knows we've been caught red-handed, there's nothing to say, so his first comments to Joseph is essentially this, I, I got nothing. I'm without excuse. I'm in front of the authority, and I have nothing that I can say. We can't clear ourselves. We are guilty. He goes on to acknowledge that they could have gone free, but have instead come back with their brother. 
you know, that first part of the strategy where the steward comes forward and says, hey, listen, I'm just going to take Benjamin as a slave. You guys go back to your father's house. It may be that we only notice that. But here in verse 17, Judah reminds us, no, 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 we knew too. We could have gone totally free. All we had to do was say, okay, Benjamin, sorry, stop stealing. And they could have left. So Judah does not make excuses, admits his guilt, understands the consequences, and still places himself in front. He manages to come near to Joseph, says, can I speak to you? Begins to describe the love and the connection that he has to his family, the reasons that he wants to substitute himself because of the pain and the ultimate death that would come upon his father. Out of love for his father, out of concern for his brother, who he sees as innocent, by the time we get to verse 33, Judah does an inexplicable thing, something unexpected, something that has not been common to date. He says, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. It's this phrase, instead of the boy, that is so full of meaning. This is substitution. This is one man for another. And it is kind of love that makes the world stop and pause and wonder. In this case, what we see is someone who more or less, at least in this particular moment, sees himself as innocent and he's substituting himself for the guilty. But it's the love that he has that makes us consider these things as, as holy almost. He says, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to break my father's heart. Therefore, out of abundance of love, I will remain. I will take the punishment. I will bear the brunt of what is coming our way. And so like the recreated childhood photo, that's similar, but there's so many changes and it's different What we find by the end of Genesis 44 is another picture that for those of us who understand the rest of the story of Joseph, especially those of us who live on the other side of the cross, I would say to you, is it a stretch? Am I supposed to talk about someone substituting their life for another and not bring up Jesus and the cross? There's been so many times already. Why is Joseph's story so beloved? I think because for whatever reason, God determined by his spirit to create these images, these pictures, these echoes. Now, they're not perfect. And if you pick them apart, of course, it's not like, well, Jesus is Judah. It becomes the line of Judah, but we'll get more on that later. The point is this. There are so many times where The story of Joseph paints a picture, and if you look at it in just the right light, or if you're given eyes to see through the image itself, you begin to see a picture of Jesus. I've mentioned them. I've tried to as we've gone along. There's a moment when the cupbearer gets an audience with the king, and what Joseph begs of him is, please say my name before the king to rescue me, and he fails. And so, There's a remembrance and a slight picture of Jesus who stands before the king and ever lives to make intercession for us. He speaks your name to the king who can rescue. 
There's so many instances in Joseph himself who endures suffering and doesn't say a word but keeps his integrity where we begin to see and think about Jesus who bore the sins of the world, who knew no sin yet became sin on our behalf, who went as a lamb to the slaughter but did not speak a word in his defense. And so we see the life of Joseph and through his life, if you look at it with eyes of faith, you, you begin to see a picture of Jesus. Chapter 43, we just looked last week, there's an entire feast put together for those who don't deserve it. They receive mercy and they're welcomed in and they sit down at a place where they say, I'm an outsider here and we're guilty and we have nothing. Why do I feel like family? And for those of us who have the spirit of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds, we see through this feast and this picture and we remember that one day we'll be welcomed in as family and we'll sit And I can't help but see something similar here at the end of Genesis 44. There are differences. Judah sees himself as largely innocent, substituting for the guilty, and we still are moved by love. How much more that Jesus, the innocent, substitutes himself for us? I should say that Judah knows he was guilty. He had killed his other brother, but... Benjamin, he doesn't, he wants to save him. And I think commenting on these things, on the same themes, it's when the Scripture erupts and says, what love that one man would offer to lay down his life for another. What love the Father has lavished on us. What a grace, what a mercy to be substituted for while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. I love the story of Joseph, not only because of the sovereignty of God and his ability to work in the midst of difficulty, but I love the story of Joseph for the number of times that I want to cry out and say, yes, I see Jesus in these pages. This is the hope that we have, that you and I one day will stand before a king of great power who has provision for us. Our guilt will be before us. We will have no excuse. Scripture says that every excuse and every word will be taken from our mouths. We will have nothing to say. And there, our brother, not because he was guilty, but in great innocence, will step into our place and he will say to the Father, put their guilt on me and let them go free. It's this story of substitution that is the good news of the Bible. It's the fact that you and I can be bound up in the life of Jesus in such a way that all of our punishment is absorbed in Him and all of His life and all of the freedom that He deserves is given to us. The story of substitution for those who have eyes to see, the story of substitution for those who read beyond the pages of Genesis 44. We ended at the end of the chapter. We might be with bated breath wondering, well, how does Joseph respond? And for those of us who know how he responds, and more than that, those of us who continue on through the story of redemption, substitution is no small thing for you and for me. So I want to take a moment and I want to invite you to pray with me that God helps us to see through the story of Judah, our substituted king. Let's pray.
God, I ask that this idea of substitution, our sin, our shame, our guilt, our inability, exchanged for the perfection of Jesus. I pray this wouldn't be a a mere story to us, that it would be animated in us here and now. I pray, God, that when we're tempted to put up pretenses, to make excuses, to long to keep what is ours and to not exchange. God, I pray that you would call to us as a loving father. I thank you for the story of Judah. And more than that, I thank you for the story of Jesus, our elder brother, who loved him, loved us, and loved you, and gave himself as a ransom for many. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.